And if you wouldn't mind turning with me to Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read some words from the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12, beginning at, well, we're beginning reading at verse 9, actually, although I'm going to be focusing on verses 17 to 21. Let's read from verse 9, so page 1139 in your church Bibles. Romans chapter 12, and beginning to read at verse 9. Let us hear the word of God. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's bow our heads as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow in your holy presence. Our prayer is that your word might be our rule. That your Holy Spirit, that he might be our teacher. And that your honour and your glory alone might be our supreme concern. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. Now if you've not been with us over the last two weeks... We have been trying to get to grips with what I've called the difficult doctrine of forgiveness. And so far, this has led us to the following definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended party to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Now it's very, very important that we try to hold on to this definition because there is another definition of forgiveness that is doing the rounds. This is arguably a more therapeutic understanding of forgiveness. That is, it makes people feel good about themselves but is essentially unbiblical And therefore, in my view, unhelpful. This therapeutic forgiveness, as I've called it, reduces forgiveness to a purely private or individual matter. Forgiveness becomes about personally ridding oneself of feelings of bitterness or resentment. Uh, through what some have described as the healing power of forgiveness. 
It, it encourages people to forgive as soon as possible and even when the offending party shows no signs of remorse or repentance. Apparently, this sort of forgiveness can happen apart from any kind of reconciliation with the offending party because it is mainly or only about what goes on within the offended person's heart and mind. And with all due respect, this sort of muddle thinking is epitomized by the father of murdered teenager Stephen Lawrence, who, as I mentioned earlier in the series, in the series recently said, the following. I thought at one time that if you wanted to forgive someone, they had to ask for your forgiveness. Not so. You can forgive someone whether or not they want it or not. If these people repent from what they have done and ask to see me, I would consider going and talking to them. And to be fair to Mr. Lawrence, he has been trying to find a way to deal with his anger and bitterness at his son's killers for over a quarter of a century now, and I don't mean to be overly critical of him. I certainly don't envy the situation he's found himself in through no fault of his own over these many, many years. But unfortunately, his therapeutic understanding of forgiveness, I believe, contradicts the Bible's understanding of forgiveness on at least three points. First, as we've seen, biblical forgiveness is conditional upon repentance and never automatic nor independent of repentance. Second, if someone repents and seeks us out to ask for forgiveness, we cannot just consider it. We must be willing to go and engage with them to assess whether or not we should forgive them. Because third, forgiveness is intimately connected with reconciliation in the Bible. The latter does not have to mean you forget the past, nor become best of friends in the future, but there must be some attempt at reconciliation. So we need to ask answer the question, uh, why this therapeutic model of forgiveness espoused by Neville Lawrence and many, many others is potentially so unhelpful and even destructive? Well, can I do this? Um, a therapeutic understanding of forgiveness is unhelpful because firstly, it cheapens true repentance. A therapeutic understanding of forgiveness is unhelpful because it cheapens repentance. Imagine two friends uh, steal money from you. Both are found out. One is repentant. That is, she says sorry and does her best to pay you back, restoring your friendship in the process, while the other is not and does not. In fact, he even brags about what he has done to mutual friends. Now, a true Christian should always stand ready to offer, to hand over their forgiveness to the person who is truly repentant. But to say that both 
these individuals should be forgiven unconditionally and unreservedly cheapens repentance and the reconciliation that should follow. What is the point or place of repentance if forgiveness is always handed over automatically no matter what? Can you see the problem? What was the point of the cross if God could have just automatically forgiven everyone? Can you see that this cheapens or devalues repentance? That's the first thing. The second problem with this therapeutic understanding of forgiveness is this. It dares to suggest that God might need my forgiveness. Have you heard people talk like that? Perhaps you've spoken like that. There will be times in our lives when we are all tempted to be angry with God for the pain and suffering we face as individuals. To resent him for putting us through a particular crisis. If forgiveness is all about you and me no longer feeling resentment, anger or bitterness... This will inevitably lead to some people thinking wrongly that to get rid of such feelings, they need to forgive God. No one, not least a professing Christian, wants to constantly be angry with God the whole time, do they? But not only is forgiveness not simply about my emotions, my feelings, as important as feelings are, Needing to forgive God implies that he is to blame or has wronged you in some way. Now, suffering is a, is a difficult topic. And we're not dealing with the, the topic of suffering today. A great 19th century English preacher once said that when it hurts, we should remember that God is too good to be cruel and too wise to be wrong. And if that is true, and I believe it is, when we, when you and I cannot trace God's hands in what we are going through, we have to trust his heart. We simply don't always know why God allows suffering. Why he allows certain things that happen to us. But thinking that we need to forgive him is not the answer. But perhaps the most serious charge against this understanding, this therapeutic understanding of forgiveness, is that thirdly, it misunderstands grace. It misunderstands grace. What I mean is that it promotes a cheap version of grace that offers people easy forgiveness, allowing individual perpetrators and even oppressive regimes or societies to get away unchallenged with their actions. It does this by asking victims to forgive automatically, immediately and unreservedly. For example, it has been noted that women who suffer sexual abuse are often encouraged by their communities to forgive the perpetrators before they are ready. In effect, allowing forgiveness to take the place of consequences. By contrast, true grace, costly grace, is willing to forgive, yes, but while also asking hard, hard questions 
about real change, about real actual social change. It doesn't, for example, ask black people to forgive simply in order to alleviate white guilt while maintaining the status quo because historically anger has been a more dangerous response for black people than forgiveness. True grace doesn't do that. No, rather, costly grace, real or true grace, demands repentance. That is, it expects, it calls for real change. As the New Testament book of James maintains, faith without deeds is dead. It's not real, it's not genuine. The gospel teaches that being a recipient of God's grace, of his lavish generosity, a generosity that none of us deserves, myself included, deserves, none of us deserves, will also cost you and me something, since it costs God everything. The price we pay is that we can no longer be the person we once were. If sanctification means anything in the New Testament, it means change. Real and genuine personal change. Now, in case you uh, haven't figured it out yet, all that I've said so far has been building to a particular question that we haven't tackled thus far in this series, which is this. How should a Christian respond to evil and in particular, to an unrepentant offender. How should you or I, you and I respond to someone who is not repentant? If you were a Tutsi who had your wife and children slaughtered in the um, genocide in Rwanda, or a woman who was repeatedly raped during the war in Bosnia, this therapeutic understanding of forgiveness would say to you, you need to stop feeling anger and resentment because otherwise you will become bitter and continue feeling bad. Forgiving the perpetrator will unleash the healing power of forgiveness in you. So do it straight away. Do it no matter what. It will help you to move on with your life. Uh, Bill Pelkey his 78-year-old grandmother was murdered in her home by four teenage girls. He came to the following conclusion. If you hang on to anger and the desire for revenge, eventually it becomes like a cancer and it will destroy you. Daniel Poskett's sister was murdered by her boyfriend. And through his grief, he came to the following conclusion. I've learned that forgiveness is not about the perpetrator. It's about you. It's about letting go of the stuff that holds you back so you can live a happy and fulfilling life. And there is some truth in both those statements, isn't there? And I'm not denying that. But in this series, I've tried to make it clear that there will be times when it is inappropriate to forgive. But how then do I deal with feelings of bitterness, of anger, and of resentment? In the words of one writer, bitterness is bad. Everyone agrees on that. Put simply, we do need to deal with the feelings we have that come to us when we are wronged. And I believe the Bible offers at least three principles that help us to deal with are very real and often legitimate and very understandable 
feelings of anger or resentment or bitterness even at being wronged in some way. And some of us here perhaps have been wronged in very deep and painful ways. Well, I I believe the first thing Jesus would say to us is this. Resolve not to take revenge. Resolve not to take revenge. Having spent 11 chapters explaining the gospel or the mercies of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul begins to apply the gospel, what the gospel means practically in Romans chapter 12 to the end of the book. A Roman split into two halves, chapters 1 to 11, and then chapters 12 to 16. You've got the gospel in the first 11 chapters, and then the implications, or some of the implications, of the gospel in the rest of the book. And look at verse 17 with me. Paul writes these words, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For in the written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but... Overcome evil with good. You can see our first principle in verse 17. If evil is done to you, do not return the favor. Repay no one evil for evil. Verse 17. And then in verse 19, Paul says the same thing in a more tender yet firm way. Verse 19, do not take revenge. My dear friends, because to retaliate when wronged, according to verse 21, is to allow yourself to be overcome by evil. You see that? Verses 17, verse 19, verse 21. And Christians are rather to strive to overcome evil with good. And part of the reason Paul is so emphatic about us resolving not to take revenge is because to many of us, revenge feels right. And let me say to you, for some of us, revenge will feel right. It is a natural instinct. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. In fact, there are people and cultures that see revenge as a virtuous thing. Literary classics of the distant and recent past often extol the virtues of revenge. There is even one particular website that is entirely dedicated to encouraging women to take revenge on men. Here are just a few of its basic rules of engagement. Ladies, don't try any of these at home. Number one. Get mad, then get even. It's justice, plain and simple. Number two, revenge is healthy. Don't listen to those mealy mouths who tell you otherwise. You're teaching people to behave better. At the same time, you're getting icky, poisonous feelings out of your system once and for all. 
What could be healthier? Number four, revenge is excellent self-therapy. It's far cheaper than a therapist and much healthier than picking out on a box of donuts. Number six, always aim your revenge where it hurts the most. Go right for the jugular. Uh, research suggests that blood feuds, that is cases in which one tribe or gang kills the members of a rival tribe or gang in retaliation for a similar attack on themselves, these are endorsed by around 95% of the world's cultures. Here in the UK, you remember earlier in the year how in the wake of the Salisbury nerve agent attack, Russia expelled British dif diplomats in a sort of tit-for-tat act of retaliation. Remember that? It wasn't that long ago. Revenge is so universally common that it has been suggested that there is something deep within the architecture of the typical human brain that facilitates it. I don't know if you have seen the movie based on the John Grissom novel, A Time to Kill. It came out, back, I think, back in the 90s. The movie did, that is. Two men molest a 10-year-old girl. Her father discovers there is a good chance they will walk free from the court. So he buys a machine gun on the black market and murders them in broad daylight in front of witnesses. The rest of the film is taken up with whether or not the jury should convict him of murder. And the whole movie just messes with your emotions because of all the many themes that goes on. Because clearly the father, played by Samuel L. Jackson, has broken the law by murdering two human beings. But part of you can't help feeling that perhaps there should be a place in society for a father to seek revenge for the assault of his little girl. She was only ten years old. And Gresham's novel, I don't know if you know, was actually inspired by real-life events. One day he stumbled across a rape trial and he writes the following. It was a gut-wrenching experience for me. I was only a spectator. I was me mesmerized. I could not imagine the nightmare she and her family had been through. I wondered what I would do if she were my daughter. As I watched her suffer before the jury, I wanted personally to shoot the rapist. For one brief moment, I wanted to be her father. I wanted justice. Even though we might feel deep sympathy, empathy even with Gresham, our emotions must never be the arbiter of what is right and true. The movie A Time to Kill makes you want to acquit that father, even though you know he clearly broke the law by taking revenge. But if Jesus were on that jury in that courtroom, there is no doubt how he would have voted. Jesus once said, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Matthew 26, verse 52. And Romans 12 is clear. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, Christians in the first century were having to put up with horrendous forms of violence. 
Yet revenge is never an option because it is not a Christian response. Now most of us in this room are never going to commit murder, hopefully. But this does not mean we are not cultivating revenge in our hearts. Ever been deliberately rude or insensitive to your husband or wife? Given them the silent treatment or withheld your affections because of something they have said or done? Ever done that? Put your hand up. Don't put your hand up. Your boss at work has been a bit harsh or unreasonable or both. So in their absence, you talk viciously about him or her to another colleague or friend. Ever disciplined your son or your daughter, not because you were trying to teach them obedience, but because you resented the inconvenience of them being, well, quite frankly, a pain of the neck. We are all tempted to indulge in small acts of revenge. Revenge has been described as the warm gulf waters over which hurricanes of violence circle. Small winds of injustice, whether real or imagined, swirl about, constantly increasing and giving rise to ever stronger winds. One act of revenge leads to another, and before you know it, you have a full-scale storm on your hands. And everything and everyone nearby is stuck into the eye of the storm, making it bigger and stronger. This is the stuff of disunity and church splits, is it not? This is why Paul says, resolve not to take revenge. Not even in small ways. It may seem right. It may even feel satisfying. But the gospel of God's grace and forgiveness forbids it. If God the Holy Spirit is convicting you right here and right now of a time when you took revenge, admit your sin to God, and ask for his forgiveness. Then seek forgiveness from the person against whom you retaliated. And in the process, don't try to explain your feelings or justify your actions. Just humbly ask for forgiveness. And resolve in your heart and mind never to take revenge again. Plead with God the Holy Spirit to help you in this. So the first principle that we begin that will begin to help us to combat anger and bitterness is calling upon God the Holy Spirit to help you to resolve not to take revenge and to resolve perhaps issues that maybe you need to resolve. That's a negative principle, isn't it? But the second principle is more positive, and it's this. Proactively try to show love. Resolve not to take revenge. But secondly, proactively try to show love. Once again, we come to what Paul teaches the Romans in chapter 12 of this great epistle. Verses 17 and 18 and verses 20 and 21 in particular. Verse 17, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, overcome evil with good. 
These verses come in a section of Romans where Paul is practically, as I've said, applying the gospel, working out the implications or some of the implications of the gospel. The section begins in verse 9 where Paul starts by writing that love must be sincere. See that? Chapter 9. So sorry, chapter 12 and verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So our verses are basically expounding what sincere love will look like in practice. And Paul's point seems to be that love should show itself in our lives even when we feel wronged by others. See, the truth is, there is a code of honor even among thieves. There is a code of honor even among drug dealers, prostitutes, thieves. What I mean is when you and I get along with people who are just like us or who we have lots of things in common with, it really is no big deal. Even thieves can get along with one another. There's nothing particularly distinctive about that. No, the real test comes when people who are not, people are not like us or with people who we don't naturally get along with or People who have hurt us or wronged us in some way. That is when uh, the excrement, as it were, really does hit the fan. If you know what I mean. The word translated, be careful, in verse 17, carries the idea of actively planning something in advance. See that verse 17? Instead of lying awake at night planning how you can exact your revenge, instead, writes Paul, use that mental energy creatively to actively plan how you can put a stop to the verbal or physical violence. Actively strive to be the instrument that quenches the animosity or hurtful actions of the person who mistreats or persecutes you. And Paul was not alone in believing this was the right way to go. Jesus said the two most important commandments were love God and love other people, even your enemies. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? One of the most famous pieces of teaching the world has ever known? Well, Jesus said this in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 39, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Notice how Jesus calls for a positive response in the wake of a negative reaction. And in Romans 12, verse 20, Paul suggests a similar sort of proactive stance. Verse 20, chapter 12 of Romans. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Far from retaliating, like Jesus, Paul told us to bless our enemies or those who might, we might need or feel the need to forgive. Pray good things for them. Call down God's blessing upon them. Even when you would much rather call down 
a curse upon them. Now verse 20 is not saying we should be kind to someone as a way of getting our own back. That sort of love is not sincere, is it? And verse 9 says love must be sincere. Now the phrase heap burning coals on his head refers to the shame your actions can bring about in the other person. You see, this, it would seem, was part of the strategy of the civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King. By accepting jail time, beatings, and other brutalities in his physical body, but by not striking back, by calling for love and forgiveness, while others called for revenge and retaliation, he hoped to shame the American people into seeing how evil racial segregation really was, as they saw it played out in its ugliest forms on their TV screens, as they saw the way the police treated peaceful civil rights activists like himself. When someone attacks you, you can show them they are wrong by the way you act towards them. Indeed, verse 20 suggests that by actively responding in love, you may end up shaming them as a result. The true story is told of a very small church in Uganda. People in that church were beaten up by others in the village simply because they attended that church. But can you imagine being beaten up by your neighbours just because you attended Grace Church Broccoli at 4pm on a Sunday afternoon? Can you imagine that? I wonder how you would respond if this happened to your wife or one of our teenagers here or one of the children's church leaders or one of the elders right here at Grace Church Broccoli simply because they were a part of this church. Personally, I think my blood would be boiling. Well, this church in Uganda started a sponsorship scheme and a school instead. They actively tried to love the people of their community and as time went on, the persecution slowly stopped. I think some of the people in that village felt ashamed of what they had done. Whatever the case, what a wonderful example of Paul's words in Romans 12 and verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Some people object to this idea that forgiveness is conditional, and perhaps you still do. That people have to repent before you can hand over your forgiveness to them. They fear that if they do not forgive automatically, then they are in danger of harboring an angry spirit which will lead to bitterness, as I've already said. But just as the gospel of God offers forgiveness to all, as a Christian, you and I must be willing to hand over our forgiveness to all. A Christian who seeks to graciously love others by being willing to forgive cannot remain bitter for very long. When a person reaches that place of understanding and actually, and actually believes the huge debt that Jesus paid for them on the cross by dying in their place, by taking the punishment that they themselves deserved, so they could be forgiven and accepted back into friendship with God, 
reconciled to God. They cannot in all conscience withhold forgiveness from that person who owes them a small, small debt by comparison. If you find yourself unwilling to forgive, this simply calls into question your understanding of the basic gospel of God's forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ. And whether or not you truly are forgiven yourself. See, by applying the gospel to our own hearts, we can end up dealing with a lot of issues in our own lives. If only we knew the gospel well enough and applied it well enough to our own hearts and minds. But in addition to all this, we have seen uh, the two principles that we've learned this afternoon. The gospel teaches us negatively that we should first resolve never to take revenge. And second, and more positively, we should proactively show love. And you know what happens when we show love? Well, in my experience, often our feelings follow behind. You show someone love, and you begin to feel love towards them. That's certainly been my experience in my 24 years of married life. Striving to do these two things will help us process our anger, our bitterness, or resentment. But that's not to say that it will be easy. Apparently, during the civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King had to fast for several days to achieve the spiritual discipline necessary for him to be willing and able to forgive his enemies. Tell me, have you fasted recently? Well, you may need to fast while praying that God the Holy Spirit would give you the strength you need to forgive. There is a third principle, but we will look at that in our last sermon in this series on the difficult doctrine of forgiveness. For the moment, let's take a moment of quiet to reflect on these questions, and then we'll have one or two questions.